Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of September. I'm Tom Tilley, and today's briefing topic, who is Breonna Taylor? There were a couple of Emmy Award-winning actors with her name on their shirts yesterday as they accepted awards. This was a woman with no drug history, no criminal record at all. Why did you need to bust into her home in the dead of night with guns drawn? What would you expect that it would end in differently? The story of Breonna Taylor and why her death matters in just a moment. First up, Annika Smethers is here for the big stories of the day. No emissions targets, but more jobs. That's what the federal government will promise today when it unveils its long-awaited energy roadmap. $18 billion will be invested in new low-emissions energy technology like carbon capture and long-term storage for solar and wind energy. There'll also be a focus on clean hydrogen and low-carbon steel and aluminium. The government says this approach will also create around 130,000 jobs by 2030. Although there won't be a hard emissions target for 2050, Energy Minister Angus Taylor says the plan will significantly reduce our carbon footprint by around 250 million tonnes by 2040. Further down the list of priorities are energy efficiency projects as well as electric and hydrogen vehicle charging and what the government calls low emissions energy system enablers which connects solar battery storage systems. What did you make of these announcements, Annika? Look, I'll wait until later today when I actually get to grill the minister at the press club about some of the detail on this. But it does look like they're using the coronavirus to pivot away and actually, for the first time in a long time, create a roadmap out that I guess will try and appease all sides. There's a little bit of the old stuff, um, as you say, sort of low emission systems, but around more traditional producing, I guess, of energy and some new stuff in there. So I don't think it'll appease the people that really want to move and take a big step towards renewables, but it might be a middle ground. And I suspect that's what the government's actually hoping. So is it a movement away from the government investing in renewables the way they have in the last 10 years? Uh, Look, I have had a quick look at what they've put out and it does say that renewable energies are mature energies now. So that means in their mind, they don't actually need propping up because they're now financially sustainable. So I think there still is chance the government will intervene at different levels and fund individual projects. Uh, But I guess that uh, broad sort of bank they had for renewables uh, won't be part of the future. An Israeli court has ruled that a former school principal should be extradited to Australia where she's accused of sexually abusing three girls. 52-year-old Melka Leifer left Australia after the allegations surfaced in 2008. She's facing 74 charges linked to her time at an ultra-Orthodox school in Melbourne. Claims that she was not mentally fit for extradition have now been dismissed, although her team has confirmed they will appeal in the Supreme Court in the next 30 days. This extradition request goes back to 2013 and there's been six years of legal wrangling and more than 70 court hearings to get to this point where a Jerusalem court has ruled she should be sent back to Australia. Despite the hotel quarantine bungle and questions around the state's second lockdown, Most Victorians are still firmly behind Daniel Andrews. Yeah, this according to a news poll in the Australian newspaper today. It found that 62% agree that he's handled the crisis well. Um, Interestingly, two-thirds of voters across Australia also support the second lockdown as the right thing to do. Um, It will be interesting to see how Dan Andrews performs in the hotel inquiry tomorrow, Annika, and see if his popularity holds up after that. 
I imagine it will, though, because he will have already faced a lot of the bad press over that bungle. Look, we do actually, I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Tom. We do actually have a sort of thing in Australia where during crises we rally around leaders. Mm. Uh, Scott Morrison's won, uh, John Brumby during the bushfires, and then that support kind of wanes. Look, I do think when uh, politicians get in front of inquiries, it is a very uh, different situation. And as we get closer to a resolution on that, I, I think uh, the, the gloss will start to come off. It has dropped a little bit since July, but amazing that that many people are still supportive uh, given the extent of the second wave. Yeah, well, I guess something that might cheer people up is uh, the restrictions could be easing up sooner than expected. If we find ourselves ahead of schedule in a manifest sense, then, of course, common sense always guides us. We will look at what sits behind those numbers and then we'll have to make a judgment. Has enough time passed for us to be confident mm-hmm. that the numbers we're seeing are a true reflection of how much virus is out there. Yeah, it's interesting to hear him hint at those um, early easing restrictions because when he mapped out that roadmap out of lockdown, they had the dates like the end of September or the end of October, but even if they got to the low numbers before that date, they still had to wait for the date. So really, it could be more of an incentive that if you get to the low infection numbers before the date, then you get out of lockdown sooner. I do think it's very hard to fault how they've handled the second wave in terms of seeing those numbers drop. It's an incredible achievement. What will be interesting is how much evidence comes out through these inquiries about government mistakes, not necessarily Daniel Andrews, but his government that actually led to the need for a second wave. So I think they're two very different questions, how well they've handled that second wave and what decisions were led to get to that point. Alan DeGeneres has opened season 18 of her talk show with an apology. As you may have heard, this summer there were allegations of a toxic work environment at our show. And then there was an investigation. I learned that things happened here that never should have happened. I take that very seriously and I want to say I am so sorry to the people who were affected. Yeah, there's been massive scrutiny on Ellen DeGeneres this year off the back of those allegations of a toxic workplace and even allegations that some of her senior producers sexually harassed staff. I know that I'm in a position of privilege and power and I realise that with that comes responsibility and I take responsibility for what happens at my show. She went on to say that she'd been known as the be kind lady and that was a tricky position to be in. But she said she is the person you see on screen and that she's not fake. I am that person that you see on TV. I am also a lot of other things. I Sometimes I get sad. I get mad. I, I get anxious. I get frustrated. I get impatient. And I am working on all of that. I am a work in progress. Yeah, so that was the part of the monologue where she actually addressed the, the really central allegation about her and her own personality and, and the way that she worked with and treated people in her staff. Uh, now, we spoke to the world's best-known celebrity blogger earlier this year when we covered this story, Perez Hilton, and this is what he said Ellen would need to do to actually stop this cycle of bad press. Whatever she does, I think people want to see her and hear from her, and if she does cry, if she is convincing that could do a lot of good. So what do you reckon, Annika? Do you reckon she did what it takes to stop the the haters? I think she had no other choice but to open her show in that way. But I did notice they were very um, counted apologies, if I've hurt anybody and things like that. And I think there's always criticism when they're not overarching and, and you just take responsibility, not just for the people that may have been hurt. Yeah, and it really was only a small part of the monologue that addressed the issue to do with her personally. There was a lot of, yeah, if, if I've affected people and I didn't realise what my staff were doing. 
But the only moment where I felt like she was addressing what I wanted to hear was when she said, you know, I'm a lot of other things. I get frustrated. I get mad. I get impatient. And I'm a work in progress and she wants to improve as a person. Um, but I never felt the pain that Perez Hilton was saying people needed to see. So I think it went part of the way to addressing the concerns, but I think there'll, there'll still be a lot of people that I guess will be at the very least applying a lot of scrutiny to Herbert um, at the worst, continuing this cycle of outrage and bad press. Today's briefing is about Breonna Taylor. You would probably know about George Floyd. Please! Please, I can't breathe! The video of him being killed by Minneapolis police officers in May sparked massive Black Lives Matter protests in America and around the world, including here in Australia. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! But there's another death, the police shooting of Breonna Taylor, which actually happened before George Floyd's, that's continuing to fuel Black Lives Matter protests. As George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a never-ending list of innocent people of colour continue to be murdered, stating the simple fact that a Black Life Matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. That was Michelle Obama, one of several high-profile Americans speaking out about Breonna Taylor, Here's NBA star LeBron James. I want her family to know, and I want the state of Kentucky to know that we feel for it and we want justice. You know, that's what it's all about. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And this is a, uh, this is a wrong situation. So who was Breonna Taylor? And why did the Louisville City Council pay her family $12 million in a settlement last week? Michael Troutman's an investigative journalist with Kentucky's Courier-Journal newspaper. He's been following the case since the beginning uh, Michael, thanks for joining us here in Australia. Who was Brianna Taylor and why has her death resonated so much? Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old Louisville native. Uh, she had gone to school. She had aspirations to be uh, start a medical career. She was a very responsible person by all accounts from her parents uh, and uh, her mother. And she was, there were talk that she and her boyfriend were going to have a start a family. Uh, that all went terribly, horribly wrong in the early morning hours of March 13th, 2020. At that time, she and her boyfriend were in bed watching a movie, basically asleep. They heard a pounding on the door. They said they hollered. Uh, who is it? Who is it? They got up. Heard nothing more than a pounding. They approached the door, and all of a sudden, the door burst in. Kenneth Walker, the boyfriend, had a Glock handgun in his hand. He fired one shot. That shot, police say, struck one of the officers who was at that door. They were there to serve a no-knock search warrant, uh, no-knock meaning that they didn't have to announce themselves before they came in, although they say they did. Uh, and then when the officer was struck in the thigh, hitting his artery, they returned fire, three officers, firing anywhere between 25 and 40 rounds. Uh, the shots went everywhere. They hit the clock, they hit the walls, they hit the adjoining apartment where other people lived. One of the officers was firing from the outside of the apartment inside uh, through a patio door that he was had the curtain shut, so there's questions whether he could actually see something. And it was all said and done, Breonna Taylor was dead in her own hallway, shot five times. This death occurred before the death of George Floyd, uh, and it Correct. didn't seem as big a reaction at the time. That seems to have shifted a bit. I just wondered what you made of why, I guess, it didn't trigger such a reaction, globally at least, and what's changed? Yeah, 
Uh, that's a very good question. And honestly, it didn't trigger a huge reaction from us as well, in part because the narrative really shifted. At first, the story was the police that very same day said, police went in to serve a search warrant. Immediately on entering, they were fired upon and they fired back and hit the suspect and the suspect died. So they portrayed it as very much, we were under attack, we fired, we defended ourselves and the suspect died. Uh, and to their credit, Initially, the boyfriend had said at one time that it was actually her, his girlfriend, who Brianna, who fired that shot. He later recanted that, said, no, I was just scared. I was just trying to protect myself. I was the one who fired the shot. So it went on for about three weeks until, uh, honestly, the, the turning point was when Ben Crump, a very prominent African-American civil rights lawyer in, in uh, America, decided to take on the case. Uh, one of the attorneys who was representing the family of Breonna Taylor here knew him, brought him in because they wanted more traction. They wanted more attention to a case that they thought was just being overlooked. And it worked. The timing on top of George Floyd uh, just made everything go haywire. And we had protests almost immediately in Louisville and have had every night since for approaching 125 days. To play devil's advocate here, Brianna's boyfriend did shoot at the officers and I guess they've framed it that they were attempting to shoot back in a dangerous situation. What do protesters say to that argument? Is there a thought that perhaps the police could have identified themselves more? And what do we know about whether they did that? That's the, yes. I mean, it's, Kentucky law says that if an officer is fired upon, they have every right to fire back in self-defense. And in fact, we have written a story where we contacted seven defense attorneys who said the chances of these officers actually having committed murder, let alone be convicted of murder, is almost nil. Because as you said, they were fired upon when they entered the home. The counter argument is that is they never should have been there in the first place. This was a woman with no drug history, no criminal record at all. Why did you need to bust into her home in the dead of night? With guns drawn, what would you expect that it would end in differently? In Kentucky, we have a stand-your-ground law that basically says your home is your castle. If you are allowed to protect it, you do not have to retreat in the face of an intruder if you, if you have a legal weapon. Kenneth Walker had a legal weapon. I think for Australians, one of the, the key factors that really changes the way these scenarios play out and which is maybe hard for us to understand is the likelihood that a suspect will have a gun as played out in this case, there was a gun and Brianna Taylor's boyfriend fired at police. Clearly, this creates a very heightened atmosphere whenever police approach a suspect. And it seems like that's what makes this broader issue so hard to resolve, that that's what police are dealing with. So for them to respond in ways that don't end up killing people there needs to be some kind of resolution of, of, of that issue. But with America's gun laws, that seems impossible. I would agree with that. I've, I think that, especially in a state like Kentucky, where we are extremely pro-gun, we have, if anything, gone to towards the direction of loosening gun regulations. We even allow guns to be taken into our state capitol building now. We're not going to see a tightening of gun restrictions in Kentucky. It, it's just there is no appetite for that at all. So that does put police in a terrible situation. We have guns flooding the street, both illegal and illegal. Illegal. Uh, in fact, we are working on a project to explore just the prevalence of guns in the neighborhood. We had one young teenager we talked to, uh, asked him how easy it is to get a gun. He pulled out his smartphone, did a flip to the left, and said, how about this one? 
I can get it for you in 30 minutes. If that's how easy it is to get a gun illegally in Kentucky, let alone legally. Yeah. It's an incredible situation as an Australian to even comprehend. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happened to the officers involved and also what action the family are taking now? Yes. Two of the three officers are uh, have been on administrative reassignment. Officer Mattingly, who was shot in the thigh, Miles Cosgrove, a detective. The third officer, Brett Hankinson, has been terminated, has been fired from the force. Uh, it was decided that he was the officer who shot from the outside, blindly look, shooting in, fired wildly, could have shot anybody inside. In fact, one of the contentions from Kenneth Walker's lawyer is maybe it was actually one of his bullets that hit Jonathan Madeline in the thigh. It wasn't Kenneth Walker at all because the gun spray was everywhere. There is still a pending uh, criminal investigation, which could be resolved potentially this week, although we've heard the same thing for the last three weeks. That could decide if uh, there are criminal charges filed against any of the police. In addition, there is a FBI investigation that probably will stretch on to next year that could determine if there are civil rights violations that were committed either by those officers who fired their weapons or by other officers who obtained the search warrants that violated Breonna Taylor's civil rights. Last but not least, just this Tuesday, the city of Louisville settled for $12 million with the Taylor family. That's a record settlement for uh, the city and included also 12 or more police reforms. So some of them that go directly to try to, to solve the problems that contributed to Breonna Taylor's staff. It's been a historic year for the Black Lives Matter movement, clearly enormous protests and also it's resonated globally. What's the, the sort of unique I guess, thread that's come from Breonna Taylor's death. We've seen Oprah, LeBron James, a lot of people making big statements on a national stage. What, what is the message? What is the, the key element that has come from this death and its reaction? I think it's for the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole, timing was everything. Black Lives Matter was not a, well, a popular group, uh, was not well-regarded, viewed on suspicion, for years. Uh, the pandemic, I think, played a part. It kept people in their homes. It, it made them pay more attention to what was going around. The videotapes of Black Americans getting shot, getting choked, getting suffocated were just horribly hard to stomach. But those cases in some, in some respects were resolved rather quickly. Breonna Taylor's case was not. We are looking now at six months later uh, and the case is still under investigation. And I think people uh, who have seen that this is a woman who was killed in her own home say, what does it take to get the American justice system to act more swiftly, to bring justice and a finding and conclusion? And that's where their frustration has risen. And I think that that has just escalated as more time has gone on and, and her story has spread wider and wider. That was Michael Troutman from Kentucky's Courier-Journal newspaper. And it's interesting to hear him say there could be charges announced as early as this week. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be some developments really soon. So that's great for protesters and great for her family. And more importantly, it'll hopefully lead to some sort of systemic change in the police force over there. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to talk about happiness with Churia Pitt. Look forward to speaking to you then. A Podcast One production.